Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people, generally speaking. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, jo oh wait, George isn't here. George got heat stroke, everybody. <laughs> so it's just going to be me, all alone, just sitting here in my studio, having fun with the show, as is my want, because I can't keep myself away from my mic. I just like talking to myself. Strangely enough, though, as luck would have it, I have a buddy named Mark Steves who uh, volunteered to show up and do an interview for us tonight. So without further ado, uh, please give a round of applause silently, wherever you are, because you're probably working, uh, for Mark Steves of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Hello, Mark. Hey. <laughs> um, I brought my own applause. All right. Having me, dude. You uh, joined me on my show uh, about a month or two ago, so it's a pleasure to be here. How's it going? Well, we're having a good day. George is not. Uh, I called him two days ago, and I guess he went kayaking. And I don't know when the last time was he was actually out in the sun. He's part vampire, from what I understand. Anyway, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna shit all over him on this because <laughs> he can't really help it. But I called him; he sounded like a dead man uh, right after. I was like, "Geez, like I haven't heard you this bad since the time you literally almost died." <laughs> and he wasn't having it, you know, no laughs, no nothing. But then I called him the next day, and he still sounded terrible. And so I texted him this morning. I was like, "Hey, you gonna be able to get on with Mark tonight?" And he was like, "Yeah, I'll try." And then I guess he went and got some Arby's or something, and now he's he hasn't eaten in days, and now he's feeling completely zonked. So, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm not his doctor, but I wouldn't have recommended Arby's uh, to recover. But you know, that's his life. That's his choice. Uh, shout out to him. I've not met your co-host yet, but sounds like he should uh, lay off the Arby's at least. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I don't know what he ate, but I was texting him. I'm like. Man, I know they don't have a Raisin Cane's or a Torchy's Tacos around where you live, but whatever you get, try to make sure it's healthy. He didn't, you know, whatever. I'm just assuming he ate Arby's or Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Torchy's Tacos, that's your that's your health choice around where you guys are at? <laughs> no. <laughs> we don't have a Torchy's anywhere around where either one of us live, but where we went to college, there was one in town. And uh, it was really weird. They had a chicken and waffle taco, which was like literally a chicken strip wrapped in a couple of tortillas and then they you pour maple syrup over top of it huh. obscene obscene yeah. we eat it again every day if i could yeah we don't have anything like that where i'm at i'm on the east coast not a lot of uh comfort food over here it's mostly seafood and bodega snacks oh well, that doesn't sound too bad you know we get like lake fish out here that's mm. not quite the same but you can get a little boat and go out there and fish just like you could on the ocean, and it's all fresh water, which is super weird for coastal peoples. But anyway, so Mark, I, I think we're going to keep this one pretty light. Um, Maybe we'll get deep near the end. I mean, we're weird dudes. We get along for a reason, right? So I'd like, first of all, for you to have the opportunity to plug what you do and talk about your show and generally say anything else you'd like to say by way of introduction. Yeah, thank you again for having me here. Uh, we talk about dead people. Um, I have a podcast called My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. It started about two years ago in 2020. Um, around that time, I had started working with Sam Tripoli on his podcast, uh, Zero, as his booker. 
and he was like, you know, what's up with your podcast? Do you have one? You should make one, you know? Um, and I had a podcast that was titled a different title. It wasn't really going anywhere. We had a few episodes on YouTube and, you know, I always been a fan of listening to shows like yours and many different podcasts out there from history to conspiracy comedy, just a whole, you know, mix of, of different shows that I was listening to. So by the time I started working with Sam, I was ready to, you know, host my own show. And I go and tell my family like, Hey, I'm quitting my job. Cause I got this opportunity to work for a comedian in California on his podcast. And they're like, what the hell, you know, like looking at me, like jaw dropped, like, I thought you liked working at Amazon, what's going on, you know, and meanwhile, the whole, uh, you know, pandemic situation was going on. So I totally despise working as a delivery driver, uh, because it's just, it was for Amazon, and they were oppressing us, so to speak, with this, you know, medical nonsense that really never amounted to anything. I was never forced to do anything against my will, thankfully. Uh, but I decided to leave that job and pursue uh, podcasting. You know, it started with with just, you know, scraping by working with Sam because he pays, you know, for me to book shows, you know, guests on his shows and whatnot. Uh, but now I'm able to support myself through the podcast, which is really cool. Uh, people have, have supported over the past 200 and something episodes and and now with the patreon support i'm able to you know kind of keep things going i still got to do odd jobs here and there but we're we're growing little by little but yeah my family thinks i'm crazy is the name of the show it's also a true statement um it wasn't just that moment when my family thought i was crazy uh it's it's been pretty much my whole life uh being a black sheep and sort of going against the grain questioning uh, the narrative showing up smelling like pot to every single family occasion. Uh, I got myself, you know, just this reputation for being sort of a hippie stoner. Uh, and I've always took that as a chip on my shoulder, sort of, so to speak, because I've always seen myself as an intelligent person and able to do what I set my mind to and accomplish goals and um, the stigma that I felt when I was younger growing up in the illegal gray area of cannabis, right? Smoking weed at 17 in a state where it was not legal um, sort of opened my mind up to how wrong the world really could be. You know, that this plant that had taught me so much in so little time uh, would be a illegal and then be socially uh, stigmatized, you know, so doing the podcast is not only a fun opportunity to explore ideas that have always fascinated me, but they're also a way for people to understand uh, me and, and who I am and the journey I'm going on. And part of that is proving to people that you can be an intelligent person uh, with cannabis because that, yeah, for whatever reason, that was a chip on my shoulder. You know, there's this idea that, oh, cannabis makes you stupid or slow or, you know, can ruin your life. You know, now it's kind of sounds silly even talking about it because it's so ubiquitous. Everybody's like, yeah, pot's cool now, you know, but uh, that actually is even more disturbing to me because it, it's sort of 
been taken to the realm of recreational drugs and alcohol and and for me cannabis was always a positive constructive transformational tool right and i'm not endorsing this for people who are sober and and have uh, a life that they value in sobriety good for you i you know encourage that personally that wasn't my path and as a martial artist i saw pretty quickly how cannabis was helping my skill set broaden and my connection between my mind and body strengthening right and and all the while i was learning martial arts i was also teaching martial arts because at this point um i worked with my you know i'm kind of going back on the timeline 10 years <laughs> around high school i was smoking weed and teaching martial arts and and that's when i it clicked in my head like oh like this stuff matters to me i should be talking about it and i didn't know what outlet to go to figure out how to you know get there but job after job after job eventually i found myself in podcasting you know and the delivery guy thing sort of preempted that because what do you do when you're a delivery guy you got eight hours to yourself for your shift and i would just listen to podcasts the whole time it wasn't always conspiracy stuff but you know i listened to every episode of tinfoil hat the higher side chats you know i just burned through rss feeds absorbing all this information and uh and it was like what i had always thought school was supposed to be but i had missed out on it and i dropped out of college you know so technically you know i gave up on myself so podcasting was a, a way for me to re-establish you know regain um who i was as a person because you know for a while i could have just ended up exactly what i said a stoner nobody that my family didn't really uh, appreciate because, you know, obviously they would have loved me regardless, but, um, I, I think they had high expectations, uh, for who I am and who I can be. And now with this podcast, I feel like psh, I'm actually answering to my higher calling. So, uh, all that being said, if I could maybe share a little bit more, um, about where I was 10 years ago, because it connects to the whole skull and bones thing. And, you know, I think most people have found themselves in a point in their life where, you know, maybe they got it down the, the path that they thought was best for them. And then they saw at some point realized this isn't what I want to be doing with my life. Well, that happened to me <laughs> the first two months of sophomore year of college, because for my freshman year, you know, I had a few interesting classes and, Really, I, I enjoyed going outside of the campus into the city and exploring. You know, that's why I liked going to school because I would go out and roll up a joint on the park and hang out for a little bit and then run back to class and nobody would care or notice that I was stoned. So or maybe they did notice, but I was paying to be there, so they didn't care. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so that was just way more interesting than my classes and I had this sort of like contentious moment with a sociology teacher who was just totally brainwashed. And, and that was like way ahead of this curve that's now cascading into a tsunami of cultural Marxism. I mean, this was 2013 when I started to see this sort of creeping in and I wasn't politically 
uh, one way or another. If anything, I was more uh, liberal back then, but I could see that they were sort of indoctrinating my fellow classmates into a, a groupthink mentality. And that really disturbed me as an individual who always was encouraged to question things. Like my family, they, they definitely thought I was crazy, but they never discouraged me from questioning, you know, like they, they would laugh at my sort of absurd thoughts or what they thought was absurd to them. Um, but they never discouraged it to, to the extent that it would like demotivate me. If anything, when they discouraged it, it motivated me even more. So I saw like the hopelessness of that. And anyways, and the, the point is I would smoke weed on the New Haven green. And this is an interesting area. I didn't know it at the time, but there are 6,000 bodies buried under the New Haven green. And if you walk around there, you're like, this is like a park. Like there's a bus stop. There's like big buildings everywhere. There's two churches, the courthouse, Yale's campus. And it's just like a, any normal middle area of a city. You got all types of people, all different, you know, class and race and whatever. Um, all mingling. And at this time it was sort of after the Occupy Wall Street thing. So you know, you had all these people living in tent cities all across the country to occupy certain spaces. And that had happened in New Haven. People were occupying the New Haven green. And that kind of created this like fringe homeless, semi-homeless atmosphere in a lot of cities. Um, I remember when I was younger, it wasn't really like that. Like you'd go downtown New Haven and you barely see a homeless person. You'd see more cops than you would homeless people. Now it's like totally the opposite. It's like the cops are outnumbered, you know, incredibly by just, you know, people who are sleeping in the park, sleeping in alleys and whatnot. Um, so I was mingling and interacting with these people because that was so much more interesting than any of my classmates at that time I was sort of sheltered so I was like oh yeah these like fringe people are interesting let me like mingle with them and it was it wasn't the safest thing I don't encourage young people to go and do that themselves but uh, I've always been taller than most people so I always felt a little bit of confidence about it you know like it's only 18 taller than most people is sort of naive enough to get myself in those reckless situations and I would smoke weed in, in that area. And one day a guy came up to me who didn't look like anyone else I'd ever seen in that area before. He was uh very dark, reddish, tan skin, sort of dressed like a cowboy, you know, Midwestern kind of like Southern Southwestern kind of gear, you know, like button down shirt and slick black hair. He was a Native American dude from Arizona, right? And like I said, not your typical person you'd see up here in New England. And he approached me because I was wearing a shirt that said, sure, you can trust the government, just ask an Indian. And it had a picture of uh, Sitting Bull, the chief on, on the T-shirt. You know, that's the type of dude I was back then. and <laughs> still am. But uh, he appreciated the shirt and we started, you know, smoking hanging out and I would see him at the green every now and then. And we would talk and, you know, Amos, like I had suspected was very interesting. And I mean, like 
you know, not the typical site in that area. And what I come to find out is that he had gotten out of jail not too recently at that point in time. And he had moved from Arizona to New Haven. Uh, and at that time he was homeless. And I asked him, I'm like, well, why would you do that? You know, you got family, you got people who could take care of you in Arizona. He's like, no, man. He's like, I wronged my family, you know, like they, you know, they, not that his, the crime he did was against his family or anything, but like in the eyes of his community, because he went to jail, he was in the wrong and he had to reconcile for that. Right. So what he wanted to do was come to New Haven because he had heard while he was in prison, this story, this conspiracy theory, we can call it, but it's actually, uh, there's a lot of evidence. I'll get into that if you'd like. Um, but the story is that Prescott Bush, the grandfather of George Bush Jr., the most recent Bush president, uh, he went out to Fort Sill in Oklahoma, where Geronimo was buried. Geronimo had already been deceased for, I think, a few decades at this point in time. And they exhumed his body, decapitated his skull, and took his femur bones, uh, and then you know, basically desecrating his grave. Um, and then they took these two, you know, femur bones and his skull back to the tomb in New Haven. And, you know, Amos, my friend, being a sort of ancestry, ancestrally related to Geronimo, you know, felt very, you know, personally about this. And, you know, having not, nothing to lose, being fresh out of prison, he moved his whole life to New Haven so that he could be closer to Geronimo and pray for his, you know, pat, safe passing in the afterlife. Because if you disturb a grave, it's not really, uh, you know, within the native cultural beliefs, that's a very, I mean, most world cultures, it's not just Native Americans, but most cultures that are in touch with afterlife and have mystical uh, beliefs about the afterlife will tell you you shouldn't disturb a body because you're disturbing their whatever's going on in their afterlife. So Amos traveled to New Haven to be with Geronimo and he met me, you know, in, in the process. Right. And, um, he told me about this mission and how it was a spiritual mission and how, you know, many of his friends that he had met in New Haven had told him like, well, Amos, let's just break down the door and get the skull back and save the day. And he would always tell me like, we're not going to do that. You know, that's not how, that's not how you, you solve this problem. You know, they have to go and, and give the skull up. You know, we, if we go and steal it from them, well, we're no better than them. So, so basically he's sort of like, we don't want to become the grave robbers ourselves. Right. Right. And it, you know, he's not wrong. They call their headquarters, the tomb, right? Skull and bones operates out of a building that's known as the tomb. And it looks as such it's a type of architecture known as egyptian revival and it was built on a one-way street in new haven's center area of the yale campus uh, and yeah it's pretty infamous you know people you walk by it like i said it's on a one-way street so there's not a lot of traffic on that street because it's like a very um just a different it's it's hard to explain if you're not from new haven but it doesn't really take you very far so not many people travel on it um, and yeah, Amos would go there every day at noon 
and scream at the top of his lungs, Geronimo! And his voice would reverberate boom, 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 throughout the campus. And, you know, we're talking about a campus that's made to look old, right? They built it in the 1700s, but they built it in the style of neo-Gothic or they built it in the style of, you know, whatever the architecture student that was tasked to do that, you know, whatever his fantasy was, right? So the, Yale's kind of a little bit of a hodgepodge of architecture. You have a, a predominant uh, neo-Gothic, but then also you have this sort of Egyptian revival, and then you have like the more classic, what we would consider colonial buildings. So all that being said, the tomb stands out. Well, and, I, I want to, you've hit me with like a tidal wave of fascinating things to talk about, and I just want to pick your brain on all of it. But I think I should probably give a little context about why we're having this discussion. Um, Mark and I are planning on having a broader discussion about the history of Skull and Bones and maybe even a broader discussion about secret societies in general and why they do what they do, because it just looks so weird on the outside. So it's like in this situation, it's like, why the hell would you go and dig up a body and like take the bones and put them in a tomb? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And from the outside, a lot of us who are like, you know, kind of like floating around the conspiracy zone, we're like, this sounds so fake because it doesn't like, why would you, there's no motive unless you know the one thing, which is what I, I try to explain to people. I'm like, look, I know it's weird, but don't ask, is it weird? Don't ask, uh, how is this wrong? Cause obviously it's wrong, but you got to understand what they're asking with this kind of shit is they're asking, does it work? And it's like, does it work to go and dig up this skull and these, you know, this guy's femur or femurs um, and go and put them in a building? Well, they're doing it, aren't they? And are they stupid? I don't think so, because they are at the top of the society, right? So they can't be that dumb. So, you know, with all this weird shit like that, I look at it and I'm like, there's something to it that I don't understand. And I'm not sure I want to understand. And you look at a guy like Amos, like shouting Geronimo at a building, and you kind of don't understand that either. But there's something there. There's, there's a reason people do these things. But I, I would argue that I understand it. I'm not suggesting that you think I don't, but I, uh, I would argue that I understand why. Amos well, let's, let's hear it. Let's yeah. hear it. So you're making a good point, and I completely understand why someone might be like well you're just uh like a crazy pot smoker who believed a crazier guy about a crazy thing that doesn't exist well that's fine and i appreciate that because maybe i've been in this echo chamber for a while now and i've taken for granted the fact that there are still people who are a unaware of skull and bones and be unaware that there's evidence proving <laughs> all of the stuff i'm talking about so anyways amos would scream Geronimo's name because that's a warrior's prayer, right? So take that for what you, whatever your spiritual beliefs are. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you need to pray or everyone should pray or, but to me at that point in my life, I was a, a pretty much an atheist, right? I, I was smoking weed and that kind of was getting me more, I don't know, aware of the world around me and aware of the programming that I had gone through, that we all do through our culture, through our schooling, all of that. Um, and the things that Amos taught me really 
changed my life in a big way. You know, I'm still not like a, a Christian. I'm not Catholic, even though I was technically brought up as a Catholic, but I believe in God. I believe in prayer. And Amos demonstrated that to me uh, in his faith, in his teaching, in his wisdom. And, you know, why he would go and scream Geronimo's name, I think it was partly because he felt like nobody cared. And this was a, a way of bringing attention to why he was there and what was going on. Um, it's also nonviolent, but extremely, extremely emotionally violent in the sense that if you hear someone scream, there is a, a visceral response to that. Uh, whether you even know that Geronimo is a person or not, um, anyone in New Haven would probably know that Geronimo is a bar. There's a bar named after him. I don't oh, think that's God. a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, you know, Amos definitely turned a few heads when he would do this. You know, he's in a campus full of, you know, budding uh, technocrats and, and the world's smartest, apparently, right? Yale is one of these Ivy League schools. And, and I don't discount that. I've interacted with a lot of very intelligent people in New Haven. And, and I think intelligence operates in a spectrum of, of ways. So there's people that are smart in certain capacities and, and maybe they're less smart than others. And this is one of those areas where for worse or for better, our culture has sort of been ignorant um, to some of the aspects that maybe we'll get into throughout this conversation. And, um, and some of these things that were proven to me uh, through my relationship with Amos were a little personal in the sense that like, you know, I wouldn't sit here and, and let a skeptic tear apart my story. I would just tell them to go out and experience it themselves. And I would even suggest that they lo lost the skepticism because that's partly what's stopping them from uh, experiencing things without limits. And, and that's where I was naturally at just as a young person smoking cannabis. You know, I was very open-minded. Some would say impressionable. But 10 years later... I'm still talking about this, you know, um, conspiracy theories become very popular nowadays. People understand now more than ever the extreme divide, the class disparity, uh, the race deception. Mm -hmm. These things are more apparent than ever. The medical malpractice. Well, New Haven was like a nexus point of all of these things, right? Yale University, to me, represented elitism. You know, I'm, I'm just a blue collar kid. I don't have, you know, tons of money in the bank. And, you know, I have family members that are doing well. And I've always strove for that. You know, I've always lived towards that higher ideal of doing well for myself. But when I see people living in a system that's designed to manipulate them away from gathering their own mental, physical, and spiritual wealth, mm. it upsets me. And that's what's gone down in New Haven and across the entire grid that is the United States. And one interesting thing that people can Google search relatively easily would be uh, that the Ivy League schools, for the most part, outside of Dartmouth and Cornell, are all along one line. And that line is, coincidentally or not, uh, 
it's it's going by a couple different names. I'll just say that in the colonies they called it Satan's axes because everything <laughs> everything west of this line was uncolonized and considered you know where the the wild things were right the the untamed savages that uh, pro the the European propaganda was you know telling us that's how the natives were they were these un untamed savages which you know, that's a whole rabbit hole that connects to this skull and bone story why would prescott bush care about geronimo's grave right mm. why well, well that's back that's that's where i was going to ask like we know why amos was shouting at the building but i have but why were they interested in the skull and bones right because right. so it works so what do, what do you know about that do you know well that's what we're that's what we're getting to so satan's axes is a good starting point so People can look that up. It's an actual term. And New Englanders are familiar with this concept because what happened with the Puritans and the Pilgrims uh, was a lot of superstitious, toponymical, you know, uh, that's a weird word, but the, that's what happened. They would, they would name things based on their superstition. So wherever the Native Americans would sort of hang out and do their ritual, had a sort of devilish reputation you have names like the devil's den or devil's tower or you know devil's creek and you know all of these different like names for places throughout new england and down south too i think they have this similar thing maybe with different dialect and verbiage but uh yeah that's that's kind of what we're talking about here we're talking about east meets west we're talking about a culture of colonizers which was not a monoculture there were multiple different groups and flavors of colonizers so to speak <laughs> you know pilgrims puritans they're really just human beings right I, i'm not in the persuasion that the colonizers were evil i think it's a, it's what happened right it's just what happened we don't need to necessarily apply morals at this point in the discussion so when it comes to the you know spiritual perspective of the native americans they lived within god they lived in god they lived in a relationship with the creator hmm. this is not acceptable with the church the church wants you to live within the church to understand god you don't you don't have a direct relationship with god you have a relationship with the church and that's how you have your relationship with God. You have a relationship with the Bible, and that's how you have a relationship with God. So mm -hmm. you have these cultures clashing, and the truth <laughs> is, a lot of these, what we would consider superstitious Christians, were occultists themselves who believed in a variety of, of beings beyond God, you know, and this whole idea that, oh, there's no other God but me. You know, that's a mistranslation. The truth is he's saying, I'm the number one God, forget about the others. Uh, but people never forgot about the other gods. They've constantly looked towards the gods for favor. And there's a variety of ways of doing this. And the Native Americans had their ways of doing it. The Puritans and the Catholics and all of the others had their way of doing it. So we see this sort of intersection of cultures, one subsuming the other one taking the place of the other and in order to do this in a sort of ceremonial black magic way 
you have to inherit the ancestry, right? So we're talking about the mounds here, right? The mound builders. We're talking about, you know, not specifically in New England because there are no mounds in New England. They had stone structures here, stone piles known as cairns. Uh, and those actually go all the way over to Northern Europe because uh, I'm, for one, this is a, a theory called diffusionism, which I subscribe to. Uh, and that is that the Native Americans did not only come through the Bering Strait. There were series of migrations of different groups of people from Southeast Asia, Northern Asia, South uh, Africa, Western Africa, and either, even Northern and uh, Western Europe, all traveling to North America prior to Columbus's expedition. Uh, so, you know, that being said, there was a lot here that did not fit into this new world narrative that the colonies, the charters, these early founding fathers, they didn't want people to go with those ideas. They didn't want them to know about that stuff. You know, that, that was a part of the, the, the melding, the mixing, right? There's all these weird things going on. The Shakers and the Quakers are getting down with the Native Americans and doing like rituals together. You have this guy in Marymount, Thomas Morton, who, who starts, you know, having sex with Native American women and trading women for guns and giving the Native Americans guns. And then we have all these wars with the Native Americans. So it's a very, very complicated history to condense for your audience down to like five or 10 minutes. But yeah. what, I, what I will say is the earth itself has energy that we can tap into as human beings through ritual. Now, the Native Americans were aware of this. Cultures all around the world have been aware of this. When the colonies settled in here and established, it was very short order that the churches took over those sacred spots. This is something they did in the UK, right? In the British Isles with the Druids, right? The, the church came in, killed the Druids, and built a church in the holy spot of the ancient druids because it was easier to convert people that way right instead of forcing them to go somewhere else just take over the place where they already worship so this this sort of thing kind of happened here in new england and what i speculate and i'm not alone in this speculation is that there was so much evidence too much evidence that suggested things that just didn't fit into this biblical narrative of what this new world was, that they had to destroy a lot of it, whether they found it in mounds or whether they found people themselves that didn't fit into the narrative, they would massacre them, they would destroy them, because the early colonies needed a political justification to be where they were. And if anything went against that, well, that was not good, right? People had invested a lot of money into settling these colonies. So the people that were here could not have any right to ownership. They had to be swindled out of their land, right? They, they, they traded their land away in all these deals and massive swaths of land were bought. Natives were pushed out of sacred spaces that were once theirs where they congregated. And just like a template, 
this new society came in and absorbed those energetic resonant places where the natives were operating in their civilization and they exhumed or subsumed them like a parasite would from the inside out you know right and and like there's a the major culture clash that occurred i'm beginning to be convinced that the major culture clash that actually occurred between europeans and native populations here in the here in america was uh the europeans liked to intellectualize everything i mean they were just coming on out of the age of reason enlightenment all that good stuff where they're like we need to have a logical syllogism for how god exists you know you hundreds of years of this um in the middle ages and in, and beyond and it just developed into this like almost mathematical way of understanding the world to the point where they're like way up here in their in their thoughts and stuff where everything's like a was like language and and mathematics and geometry and all that stuff and they got up there and they got so disconnected from what's down here like uh, the lower stuff closer to earth so to speak that when they rediscovered things like resonance and energy they wanted to turn that into a scientific procedure as well which is where i believe a lot of like masonic influence comes from and... i would say they never they never rediscovered it i would say that, that for the most part it had become something that the church outlawed this type of stuff and then the masons after this whole rosicrucian manifesto sort of re-enlivened a lot of the stuff that had only been preserved through jews like Jew jewish people you know kept a lot of these occult ideas within kabbalah and that had you know sort of co-mingled in certain places like spain where you had the muslims and the jews and the christians all sort of mingling keep in mind columbus only left to discover the new world right after the spain had kicked all the moors out of spain so you know like i was sort of hinting at before you have this diffusionist theory that you know more groups of people than just the Bering Strait group had settled in North America. How do we know that the Spanish didn't have some sort of information from the Moors, this group of people that had been traveling throughout the world's oceans and seas, trading, uh, you know, coastal people, seafaring people? How do we know that they didn't get some information from them, that there was this whole other group of, you know, land masses that had largely been uninhabited by the monarchy or any type of you know so what i'm saying is as the colonies started to build up there was a lot of outliers that needed to be cleaned up to keep the narrative alive right so i mean i can give you plenty of examples one that's extremely fascinating is this concept uh, or this story of prince maddock a Welsh prince who traveled to the New World, sailed down the river in Canada into the Great Lakes, and eventually was killed by some natives in Alabama. Uh, and his body was taken back to England secretly uh, and buried there. And and you know this whole story of him traveling to the somewhere in the Far East and dying and coming back, you know, was fabricated to keep the New World a secret. You know, there's. Things like that, you know, Roman coins that have been found in the uh, Ohio River Valley and in the uh, Mississippi River Valley that are like, well, how the heck did these Roman coins get there? You know, they didn't have these Roman coins in, in the colonies. How did they get there? They're, you know, uh, dated to a period prior to Columbus. And there's 
a plethora of examples of, of things like that that don't fit in what we would call out-of-place artifacts. Um, sometimes you can get into that topic and it's a lot about aliens, but uh, out-of-place artifacts are also considered things like you know, a Roman coin or a Chinese scroll in the Grand Canyon. Like, how did that get there? History tells us that the Chinese never went to the Grand Canyon, but here's a Chinese scroll in the Grand Canyon. So, uh, you know, no coincidence, the Hoover Dam flooded most of the Grand Canyon. So uh, everything that was there is is underwater now. Um, but anyways, this is the kind of theme that occurs and where does it occur it occurs in the university system with groups like the smithsonian the peabody all of these museums that are uh you know aiming to preserve culture and understand this noble savage that you know was just like a you know a like a little in a little snow globe over here and never evolved and you know that is such a lie man that there are so much evidence that people from Norway, people from Africa were trading with the Native Americans. I mean, I mentioned the Cairns earlier. Uh, there are plenty of structures across New England that resemble structures that they have in the UK and in Northern Europe. So, you know, it's like, did that, does that mean that people from Northern Europe were here and built them and then left? Or does it mean that maybe they were mingling with the people that were here prior to Columbus and trading ideas, trading different furs and goods? And, you know, we have things like cannabis that have made their way all around the world, right? And we're told that cannabis originates in India, but it grows, it was growing in Mexico when the Spanish came, they didn't bring it here. Uh, so, you know, that's the kind of, these are the kind of like theories that are out there and not really recognized and and you know to really get back to your question which is why would prescott bush uh desecrate the grave of geronimo well you got to keep in mind like at that time the west was still not totally settled when prescott bush was was going out and and exhuming this grave and also when skull and bones was founded it was even you know further back they had they'd hadn't even um settled most of the territory that Jefferson bought. So the the whole struggle between the Native Americans and the settlers, quote unquote, you know, this was fought by people in the East Coast establishment. They were funding these campaigns to go out and, you know, fight the the native Apache in the Southwest and fight, you know, up in the Midwest and up near Utah and all the places, you know, wounded knee, like all of these horrible uh genocidal really genocidal uh aspects of history and i'm not an apologist here you know i don't think the native americans were all good right there were some that did stuff let's say like enslaving other tribes or raping and killing other tribes i mean they they weren't all one homogenous group with one homogenous system of morals well yeah but, they were human beings they had right. their and to pretend like that didn't exist and to stick them all in one big glob sort of robs them of their individual identity. And I think the same thing's been done to a lot of cultures around the world. I think it's part of a control program to keep us all like, mm. uh, I don't know. But you know what? Hey, you know, you and I are kind of like black sheep. My family thinks I'm crazy. A little less so these days because I've been able to talk to them a little bit. But like, you know, the, the, Again, it's like even talking about this and having these thoughts is 
foreign to some people because they've just grown up within that grid. And that's where I think, you know, what I'm talking about when I say there was a, there, it was almost like a cosmic joke that these people would run into each other when one was just coming out of an intellectual age and the other was still living very much in a spiritual, very grounded kind of culture where they moved with the buffalo, right? They moved with the weather, the wind, and they were, you know, always on their feet, always learning, always moving. Like there's this, there's a bias in the historical narrative to pretend like there wasn't some value to that. And what I'm getting at, what I've been attempting to get at anyway, I don't know if I've been clear, but what I've been attempting to get at is the out of the intellectual age came this desire of, okay, now that we know like everything on the intellectual level, where's the secret powers? Like what's the reality hacks that we can learn? What are the cheat codes we can get for this world? And I think like most Europeans at the time, they wanted to go at it and just like split hairs and try to find a way to look at it with a microscope. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar when the age of reason ended and the, what they consider the age after that began. Um, but I, I would like to know that so I could sort of get a sort of bearing on, I'm going to look it up right now. Um, uh, bearing on what you're talking about because yeah. Okay. So um Oh no, that's a book. So it would be in the the seventeen hundreds, in the eighteenth century. Yeah, late seventeen hundreds into the eighteen hundreds. So I will say, you know, when we're talking about Columbus, you know, we're talking about fourteen ninety two, right? So a little bit prior to that, and even New Haven itself, you know, was founded in the sixteen hundreds. So like the town I live in, founded in the sixteen hundreds. So you know, we're talking about uh, a time when you know the world was a lot different, right? I mean. A lot of people get this misconception that the Puritans and the pilgrims were not practicing anything mystical. Uh, I found otherwise. It, the truth is that they've been, you know, doing a lot of interesting little secret practices. And, you know, it's it just this whole concept of uh, Salem and witchcraft and, you know, it all, it all like, you know, Peter Lavenda kind of writes about in his book, Sinister Forces, like, you know, Columbus, when he set foot on land in the new world for the first time, he interacted with the Arawats, you know, and these were very peaceful, mystical people. And it's almost like by betraying the Arawats, this sort of curse uh, sort of befell the the people who settled this new world because all of a sudden you see this like frenzy of mystical chaos of like everybody blaming each other for oh. for you know witchcraft and it all started with tichaba technically it didn't start with tichaba there were people who had hung uh who had hung as witches before tichaba but the salem trial started with tichaba and tichaba was from the caribbean where uh Columbus settled. So, and her ancestors were from uh, Guyana, where Columbus eventually gave up, right? I'm pretty sure he even was turned against, his men turned against him and sent him back to Spain, uh, like in shackles, you know, because he did such a terrible job uh, leading them to what they thought would be the East Indies. And I've heard actually my friend Amos tell me that the, the idea that they called the natives here Indians was not, in fact, because they thought they had landed in India, right? The country of India, as we now know it. It was because 
in Spanish, the word Dios and the word Indios together would be Indian, right? So these people lived in God, meaning they lived with God. They lived in this Garden of Eden where, you know, like I said before, they had a direct relationship with the Creator. They didn't have a priest in between telling them, oh, this is how you interact with God. And for worse or for better, you know, that mentality has evolved into sort of a Western New Age spirituality, right? You have all of these occult ideas that were bubbling up in Europe and sort of got forced out of Europe. They settled here in the New World and blended in this melting pot with this native consciousness that was so close to Gaia and you know we're still not even through the uh you know the retribution that will be paid for you know what's already gone down as far as like a crime against nature and a crime against humanity you know i believe in karma to some extent but to get back to geronimo and your question about prescott bush why would they steal a skull and bones why would they steal a person's skull and two of their bones well I'm sure you're familiar with the Jolly Roger pirate flag. And yeah. a lot of these pirates were proto Templar or not proto, but uh, virtually Templars, right? I mean, the Templars didn't exist technically in that time period, but a lot of their ideas and practices were in this vein and in this sort of area, you know, these, these groups like the, that evolved into the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, these big trading groups, you know, they were all uh, Freemasonic and, and, you know, occultic. They had these secret society ties that go back to, you know, the Temple of Solomon. So um, we have this concept of the Jolly Roger, right? That's obviously where this sort of symbol comes from. But then we also have this maybe lesser known ritual, which is the uh john the baptist skull <clears throat> being used as an oracle or even a, as a chalice flipped upside down and drunk out of so you know the templars are said you know to have stared into the eyes of the skull of john the baptist and and you know that was their oracle that's how they uh, gained insight i was telling you before there's many different ways to practice magic well divination uh, is one of them, and and there are many different forms of divination, and one of them is uh, you could use bones and scrying, right? You scry. You know what scrying is? Yeah, yeah. That's scry, for people who don't know, it's like going into sort of trance state, staring at something, and you sort of get into a different uh, brain wave if we're going to get neurological about it. Uh, you go into a theta brainwave state, and in this state, maybe you're more open to whatever lies on the other side of the dimensional boundaries. Uh, maybe there's some sort of entity that they're interacting with through the skull. Maybe they're interacting with John the Baptist himself. I mean, it, that would fit with Native American logic that uh, a person's soul would have some sort of link to their their actual physical body for the period of time that it takes for that physical body to decay. Now, I was, I just, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is like fascinating. Again, if you back away from all this strange sounding stuff and you ask yourself, not 
how does it work? Is it neurological? Are we in a theta state? Is it spiritual energy? Are they high? Like, what are they doing? Eliminate all that. Does it work? And that's the thing that I think in a certain, in a certain mindset, when you're staring into the eyes of a skull, having just drunk something from it, you're in a weird state of mind and you might see stuff that some people would call you know, a hallucination. Others would call an illusion. Some people might call a possession. Others might call it demonic influence or something like that. Some might call it brainwashing. <laughs> There's all these different words for what it is. Well, I mean, it's not far-fetched to think that um, residue of DNA would be left in the skull and alcohol as a solvent to some degree could maybe mix with that and pull something out of it uh, <laughs> as you're drinking from it right so there is an alchemical aspect to it that i'm not extremely well versed in someone might be like you fool they can't get dna from a bone but i i don't know i maybe a skull and a brain would be different um but either way it doesn't really you know you could look at it both ways. I mean, you could take the really simple look at this story and say like, okay, well, they just did that as like a, an F you like we're in charge. Now we don't care about your silly spiritual beliefs. This is our world. Now this is our Christian land now. And we're going to decapitate your King. Cause keep in mind, Geronimo was one of the toughest, baddest dudes that ever ran through the American West. Right. I mean, he was, he was one of the baddest dudes out there. Like he famously survived bullet wounds. He could, you know, decipher uh, the code signaling that the army would do from tower to tower. He could like, you know, understand what they were saying to each other. I mean, this guy, he had supernatural prowess. He had a reputation that was uh, more than a man, you know? And I mean, you see it in like, I think the Ninja Turtles made it popular for people to like jump into a pool and say Geronimo, but <laughs> like they used to tell U.S. Army uh, Air Force guys, or I'm sorry, U.S. Army paratrooper guys uh, to say Geronimo as they were jumping from the plane because it would give them courage. Uh, why would you do that? Well, it's as simple as a mantra. I mean, you you people know what a mantra is at this point in time, like. You know, you can buy like a cheap poster that says like, be love, be happy. Like that's a mantra, right? Like yeah. that's, that's like a cute white girl mantra. Like there's a, there's like hard, like David Goggins mantras, like be a man, like kick your, you know, like that kind of <laughs> like it, that's all it is. Right. So like yeah. Geronimo, when you say his name, you're calling out that ferocity, that strength. Uh, and he, he wasn't a ferocious person, to, so to speak, like he was some kind of untamed tiger that would just kill at will. He had that capacity because uh, it was a righteous vengeance. His family had been killed right in front of him. You know, his first wife and children were killed right in front of him. Uh, that would make any man go nuts, you know, and he was definitely... Uh, a victim of of many tragedies in his life and his people were. So, uh, you know, I just had a really brilliant conversation with a woman named Dr. Erica Elliott, who spent uh, almost two decades, I think, with the Navajo in uh, Arizona. And, you know, she talked to us about how the peyote button only started being used in the 19th century, really relatively recently in the 1800s. 
the Lakota were so badly massacred that some tribes from the south, I guess, said, hey, you should try this plant. And that's when, you know, the ceremonial use of peyote really began in this country. I don't know if it was used outside of maybe really arcane and old rituals uh, prior to that. But, you know, nowadays people have like this whole cult of ayahuasca and, mm-hmm. and you know, that really comes from sitting with peyote and, and the plant medicine. And what it was meant to do was help people deal with their grief because their whole world had been destroyed. Their whole race had been killed. Their way of life had been taken from them. Uh, you know, again, I'm not an apologist here. I, I'm extremely sympathetic. And you know, in New England, it's, it's, it's interesting because, like I said, my town is 400 years old. That's 400 years of separation between what it was like and what it is like now. And uh, it's very hard to trace what kind of impact the natives had on the area here because they were very minimalist. They were very renewable, so to speak. Like they lived in a way of life that didn't uh, leave much behind. Although they did leave behind very interesting and intricate stone structures here in New England that suggest that they were not savage people. And I would even go as far to say that Yale owes a debt of gratitude to the native consciousness and the native wisdom that it took the place of, because what are they known for now? They're known for medicine. They're known for politics, you know, democracy. The whole idea of a democracy sure came from Greece. Yeah, they really did a good job with it. Look at their country now. But (laughs) the Confederacy of the Native Americans inspired the founding fathers to create the republic that we have here in this country. It's not a democracy, it's a republic. And these ideas uh, were backed up by uh, the wisdom that had been tried and true in a country of people who had, for the most part, figured out a pretty, in my opinion, cool way to to live life. Would I go back being a comfort creature of comfort here? No, I mean, most likely not. But we take for granted a lot of the aspects of our culture that came from the native consciousness. And I would argue that the university system is to blame for that. Skull and bones is to blame for that. And yes, it was, we're going to take your king, decapitate him and leave him in our headquarters in the basement for no one ever to see again. Uh, Yes, that was a part of it. But also, why would they have Martin Van Buren's skull? Why would they have some random Russian lady who lived in and did seances in New Haven in the 1800s. Why would they have her skull? You know, like why would they have, you know, uh, the Apache kid who's just a regular native American dude who was an outlaw. He didn't know, barely anyone knows who the Apache kid is. I didn't know who he was. I found about, found out about him in a newspaper archive. And at the end of the newspaper archive, they said that the Chicago businessman who claimed his bounty by shooting him, uh, at sunrise, like cowards, they waited for him to fall asleep and then snuck up on him at sunrise. Uh, they they sent his skull and bones to skull and bones at Yale University, and they wrote it in the newspaper like it was a like a novel thing. Like, oh, look at that! Yale has their own skull and bones department. You know, like it was just so wacky to see that. And 
you know, I would argue um, that it's not just physical, it's spiritual. You take that energy of people and you de decapitate their leaders and take their leader and bring them into your headquarters, you know, it's like the students of Yale are benefiting from that in a way, you know, the, the spiritual energy that's there. Uh, it's neutral. It could be used for bad or good. And, and uh, clearly uh, it's being used for bad when you look at where Skull and Bones has invested their money. I mean, we could talk about their connections to the drug trafficking, human trafficking, talk about their connections to the military industrial complex. We could talk about their connections to eugenics and slavery, uh, funding the Nazis in World War II, uh, funding the CIA, funding MKUltra, experimenting on homeless people. Uh, you know, these are things that have happened in New Haven and abroad because groups like Skull and Bones have cast a web across the United States. And it's interesting, in the late 1800s, way before McCarthyism, people in New Haven were handing out pamphlets warning of the communist influence that Yale had over its students and saying, you know, beware the communists who tap you on the shoulder and ask you to join their club. You know, they're, they're not patriotic. They're taking, they're going to ruin this country basically. Like, wow. People were a lot smarter back then, you know, especially like in printed material, you can find information about this stuff that, you know, now they wouldn't let on Wikipedia. Uh, Anthony Sutton, he recorded a lot of that in his book and Chris Milligan as well in his book. Uh, I would recommend people check out both of them. The, the titles are fleshing out skull and bones. And then the other one is America's secret establishment, uh, the order of skull and bones. But, you know, there was a group called the order of the file and claw around this time when people were really suspicious of Yale and skull and bones, particularly, uh, and, I should say Skull and Bones isn't alone. There's other secret societies within Yale that all seem to just be vestiges of the same being. For example, Skull and Bones, S and B, will flip that around and you have B and S, Book and Snake, which is right down the street from Skull and Bones. Then you have the Wolf's Head Lodge. Now, Wolf's Head for non-Masons, that's a symbol. That means you're the son of a Mason if you're a Wolf's Head. And... You know, there's a whole story there with me accidentally ending up inside of the Wolf's Head Lodge. But um, the Order of the File and Claw broke in to the tomb in the 18, late 1800s, and they found a lot of interesting stuff. They found skulls in the basement. They found black velvet on the walls, like this very decadent, like way to upholster your, your walls, you know, black velvet. I mean, could oh. you imagine and they found over the fireplace in German a phrase that says, you know, um, something, actually, it's in this book. Why misquote it when I could just read it to you? But they found all these strange things inside of their tomb, and they basically prompted the order to go and beef up their security, and they ended up building uh, a double-sized tomb. So they used to have a single single plot tomb now their plot is twice the size the building's twice the size um so yeah it's very interesting you know what they found actually they they did like a little like 
floor schematics and showed the layout of the building. And like I said, detailed some of the furniture and upholstery and um, I'm looking for an image right now of what their banister had on it. Cause it's an interesting phrase. It's like a German phrase, but, uh, but yeah, people might be familiar that certain individuals in skull and bones have nicknames such as Gog and Magog, right? Uh, George W. Bush and George Bush Jr. Or I'm sorry, George Bush and George W. Bush Jr. Um, whichever one's right, <laughs> were named Gog and Magog in Skull and Bones. That was their... Really? Yeah, and that's sort of a biblical hint, right? They're pointing at part of the Bible that I'm not totally familiar with, but I know it has to do with the apocalypse to some degree. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and yeah, there's been other names like Thor and, you know, Dionysus. And so they like to pick like these sort of lofty occultic sort of deities as their nicknames. And that just shows like where their minds are at. And I should say like, okay, Mark, you kind of going all over the place, but what's the point? So I guess the point is like, for me, I always suspected this. But I think most people sort of accept this now that there's an exoteric and an esoteric side of American culture and the esoteric side of American culture is very Freemasonic. It's sort of satanic even in some ways. And uh, in the 1800s, people caught on to this. There's a man named William Morgan who was murdered and people were very worried because it seemed like the whole state of New York was controlled by the Freemasons. Nobody would give this man justice. Nobody would take the culprits to trial. So the whole nation freaked out and said, we don't want Masons in government. We're going to start a political party called the anti-Masonic party. And they were very successful. I mean, they really inspired a lot of fear in the Masons and caused them to go pretty much underground with a lot of their operations. And groups like Skull and Bones were formed in response to this. So prior to that, the debate societies would have had exclusive factions where, you know, the people with fancy uh, degree or pedigrees, you know, from higher up families than their other peers would get to be in like the cool kids club and share secrets and share the sort of everything that comes with being in right and and in that high society that means everything right being in is everything when you're in that elite society so it evolved into a sort of underground thing as the political atmosphere changed and converse to that was this sort of greek letter groups that came as well because some groups decided okay we're going to go public we're not going to go underground we have honor we're going to just do everything above board so that's when you start seeing you know all these greek letter groups promulgating throughout the college system and really just taking control of the american education and it, it it's not skull and bones alone but where we see skull and bones have an influence is through this sort of german hegelian idea of like the state is supreme to man. The state 
is the almighty figure and we need to put all of our invest everything in the state and that's what you see skull and bones sort of inspiring people to go on and do with their careers become very uh you know secularly minded sort of outwardly secularly minded because they of course have all this occult knowledge um and i mean creating this sort of corporate corptocracy that we have here today mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot man it's a lot i feel like i'm kind of like jumping ahead when i think of something new so forgive me for maybe not answering all your questions entirely but uh no i'm just sitting here i'm just sitting here absorbing information it's really making my brain uh work overtime a little bit um but it's not that i haven't encountered this stuff it's just that analyzing different aspects of it are always very it's always a a bit of a a mind bender Mm. um I like I I love what you said about there being an esoteric and exoteric um view of American history because that's absolutely true. Most people think in terms of the exoteric and that's kind of what we focused on our show with is like what are the what are the facts that we can kind of know I guess and how can we build a story here um that's compelling and funny. Uh but every now and then you run across something where you're like, "Man, there is way more going on here than just like the facts." Mm. You know? Right. right. Well, yeah, and there's a reason. There's a reason for all of these things. I mean, people who would debate this and say, "Oh, this is all too far fetched." I mean, I would argue that you just haven't seen enough of how the real world operates. And uh, I, I got a chance to see maybe one of the uh, more unpleasant aspects of it through my friendship with Amos in New Haven, and and you know, again, ten years ago, a lot of these ideas were out there on the internet. Uh, very freely conspiracy theories were beginning to be talked about more and more there are already conspiracy podcasts that i hadn't found yet but you know they were out there um and yeah we've seen like a sort of explosion of interest in that lately so you know maybe now people are more comfortable with this idea that secret society because i think the response would have been in the past like no like that's that's impossible dude like what do you mean secret societies control the country like yeah. like what have you ever like i bet you say it's like, people next you know yeah like it it was such a it was such a like shocking response from people because me the naive guy i was i expected people to be like whoa mark no way tell me more and yeah. for the most part up until like three or four years ago a lot of people were very like you can miss me with that. Like I'm not, you know, and they didn't even have the concept of, Oh, I'm blue pill. I'm red pill, but that's just naturally kind of what it felt like. I've gravitated away from those terms, but um, let me ask you a question then. Um, Where do you think podcasting fits in with all this stuff? Cause I've had this very strong sensation that it's maybe the most effective thing that we've got going for us right now. Cause I'll tell you what, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, my parents didn't listen to podcasts at the end of my, the pandemic. My parents listen to podcasts and don't watch the news. <laughs> they can help it unless they're like stuck in a hotel room and they have nothing else to do. Wow. Um, it's, and they listen to, you know, they listen to all kinds of stuff and we share information freely. And, you know, at the be again, at the beginning of the thing, my brother, like I was telling him like, Hey man, like it's from a media point of view, this is hype. This is an opportunity. 
Like, just don't get freaked out. Like, my my goal was to keep people from getting freaked out. I didn't really do that good of a job because I was a little freaked out myself. But um, reality is, like, I see this this information finally becoming like, oh, so a lot of people have thought about this, and there's a lot more people looking up, wondering what's going on up there. And it turns out for 50, 60 gosh maybe centuries there's been small groups of people who have said hey look over there there's more going on than you see and it just feels like right now podcasting is really important because you know the conspiracy theory stuff is fun uh bigfoot's fun ufos are fun i call them you know chew toys for the curious uh all that stuff is there to like see how like uh flexible your mind actually is and at a certain point, it's like the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of finding out what's really going on there is the goal. It's training your mind to be something that's slightly more critical while also being more open. Um, because, you know, we talk about history as like, you know, oh, there were colonizers and there were natives and they just got in fights and things. And it's like, it really goes a lot deeper than that. What we've all experienced with history and what we've all experienced with thought and intellectual pursuits really um, has come from a monoculture and that's good and bad. Like there's a, there's something good about having like a unifying monoculture. Right. But there's also something terribly blinding about it. Right. And I think podcasting and the reason I like talking to guys like you is cause like you and I are not at all the same kind of guy. Like I, you could call me like a square compared to you, but, but I know it's an old fashioned term. I sometimes turn into a bit of a boomer on the show. But the uh, the thing I was going to say is like, I like examining what you have to say because you're just, you think about it a different way. It's the same reason, you know, we're having Howdy back on in a little while. You know, people look at that guy and they're like, this dude believes the World's Fair was, you know, a big game show or, you know, just like a, like a educational system. Like it could have been, I wasn't there. I don't know. All I got are pictures, but Howdy's got like a 10,000 page document over here that he's read <laughs> And it's like, what is, so it's like, I think I, I want to ask you, where do you see podcasting fitting into people getting, you know, red pilled or whatever? I know you don't like the word, but mm. I can think of it as like raising awareness, that sort of thing. Yeah, this is, a, this is the pattern that I'm talking about. The pattern of consciousness that was ingrained into this landscape and that template was taken by a different group of people and they replaced it right so what wh why are like mark you didn't answer this guy's question no okay let me let me take it back down a little bit so podcasting is just a technological version of us sitting around the fire sharing stories mm -hmm. right in the past there wasn't a fire big enough to fit as many people that can listen to this conversation right now so now we're in a for, uh, like an accelerated version of what used to go down here in the United States. People shared with each other. They didn't just share resources with each other. They shared communities with each other and they shared information with each other. And there's a reason for, you know, the fighting and the squabbling, just like there's a reason why the lion kills the zebra, you know, like all of those things were in their natural order. And uh, that was sort of karmically broken. And now we are inheriting the good and the bad karma of our ancestors. And part of that uh, in being in this landscape is sort of reestablishing 
the old aspects that were karmically broken and reintegrating them into what is here now with what came from the old world all of the stuff going on in the rest of the world sure but like you could look at the past hundred or so years as an example of how influential north america had the potential to be we expressed that right and some might argue that oh we're on the we're on the the precipice of that being over and like you know america's greatness is ending crumbling and i would say totally wrong yes uh, <laughs> if anything we're heading towards an even greater point in our history and i've heard many different stories from indigenous minds not just here in north america that say that North America will be the spiritual torch for the next age, whatever that means to whatever, you know, whatever you believe. Uh, but I think that, you know, podcasting is a part of that because here we are, you know, I mean, podcasting was invented technically by Adam Curry, who is an American man who, or sort of Dutch heritage. He's mm -hmm. from New York though. I'm pretty sure. So, you know, I'll take, I'll claim podcasting as American, but it's clearly international. I mean, it's gone all over the world and that's beautiful because this is what we need to do. We need to come together in these networks and strengthen our own individual nodes, not compromise the strength of our node for the network, but uh, strengthen each individual node as an individual network in itself. Uh, that's the big fear with globalism is like, oh, we'll just become one big node and no one will have a purpose. And I say that, yes, that's possibly true. And maybe the obsolete monarchy of Europe wants to push us there. But eventually we're all going to realize that they suck and Charlie Fatfingers has no power over us. And we're going to, you know, we're going to have our own, you know, banks and we're going to have our own, you know, economy that's outside of this sort of model that is here's the middleman here's the authority here's you right yeah no that's and that's the whole god priest you know uh papal or pa what, what do we call someone who frequents a church a pauper yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so, right. the that, call him a lay member right so it would that was the the hierarchy yeah and the industrial revolution you saw that sort of fluctuate in many different ways and i think now we're sort of reaching the end of the industrial age and you know it's gonna take a lot of correcting we've screwed up the environment a bunch i don't think it's as bad as the climate crisis people think it is but uh but there's definitely pollution that needs to be cleaned up and land that needs to be restructured and creeks that need to flow again and things like that. So, you know, I'm someone who, who believes that whether or not one person says it uh, or does something about it, it will inherently happen. And that's not to justify my own or anyone else's laziness. I'm not, I mean, I'm a little lazy, but I, I don't fall on that out of comfort. I'm just, in my mind, you know, this thing is so much bigger than us. We are just like the, the, the little bacteria in our gut right now compared to the earth, you know, like just like you have a billion little bacteria in your gut digesting your food and making you healthy. There's 
you know, that's what we are to the earth in a way, you know, and then we, that's not to minimalize ourselves. I think we have a much more complicated role than merely, you know, <laughs> digesting food. Um, <laughs> but we, we definitely need to recognize our place within the symbiotic hierarchy, the natural order hierarchy uh, that the Native Americans were a part of, man. And, you know, it's funny, like all of these new ways that people are doing agriculture, they're all based on the old ways of doing it. They're all based on how people originally did it. So, you know, it's not so much that we need to like think about what's next. It's like, what can we do better based on what worked in the past, you know, because right now what, what we're doing is not working. You know? well, let me do like a big picture here thing here. Cause like now you got me going. Uh, so it's like, if you can think about like the, the colonist, this, I'm going to talk about something very sensitive. Please don't take me wrong. Listeners. Thank you. Um, the colonist versus the native as a paradigm you have, they're basically antithetical to one another, right? So you have a thesis and you have a, antithesis or antithesis whatever um and they come together to create the synthesis right so what you're saying is basically the thesis of um well don't let me put words in your mouth what i'm trying to say is that the thesis of industrialization and westernization of that sort of thing has spent its energy like we're at the end of that now thank god uh it went it was great and everybody's like it reached its apex in the 50s like that's a classic meme people are like we got to go back to the 50s right that was where it all started to come down. Like post-World War II, everything started to get worse. If you have your eyes open, you can see it. It's obvious. I just look for the potholes in the streets. <laughs> um, and it seems like we're, we're, people are talking about America collapsing or falling apart or the empire is over and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yes, and that's a good thing. Because like one thing that people get wrong, and we've talked about it many times on our show, is that the Middle Ages are completely misunderstood by most people, thanks to movies and television. Um, the reality is that the Middle Ages were a great era where people could step back and take stock of what had happened. And all they had were the stories and traditions that came from ancient Greece and Rome and all of these other great empires. And they could sit there and be like, how the hell did that ha fall apart? And then they thought about it for like 500 years. <laughs> And then they got things going again. And it's like, I see, I think when you say like, you've got indigenous minds on this who are saying things like America is going to be the torch for the future. I did not believe that at all about three years ago. I was like, America's got to go. It's the worst thing in the world. Like it's destroyed everything. I mean, like legit, like, and not like in a pissy way. Like it was just like, this has been objectively a bad thing for a long time. I felt the same way. I mean, I, I was like, I was there, you know, I think that was part, that's part of the social engineering to some degree. I mean, yeah, it could, you could come to that thought organically. Sure. Uh, but I think it's to a certain degree, like our culture has been engineered to give us that sort of pessimistic take on ourselves, beat ourselves up. Yeah. And it, it's one thing I've, I've tried to express before, but the power of, uh, information control mental control it goes beyond just giving people different stories it it it's they shape how you think right so you ultimately arrive at predestined conclusions uh based on the logic that you're given so to speak so if you've the best way to detect if you've been victim of something like this is to just look at yourself like 
where am I right now? These things that I believed in and fought with people in college about, these protests I went to, what has it gotten me? Like, has it turned me into a poor, cringing sap on antidepressants, or has it made me into a better person? And if you honestly look at yourself and you're like, this has made me worse, then it's okay. You can admit something went wrong along the line, and it was probably engineered to do that. And it's like, you know, at the very beginning of the interview, you said the word cultural Marxism, and I know that triggers people um, because it's, a, it's, again, another term that's been loaded with all kinds of different meanings. What we're talking about is not Marxism and not communism. It's not an ideology. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking of things are unequal, therefore they're unfair, which isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily true. Because, you know, when you're in the dirt, and you're doing something, you know, like working at Amazon or where I was working, you know, when we first spoke, I was still in a warehouse. Like that stuff is an opportunity to grow stronger. And growing stronger is so underrated in the world today. Um, you know, you're like, if you can get a backbone, you're bulletproof and these things don't bother you anymore. Um, so it's like, yeah, in times of like peace, it's time to take stock. It's time to reflect, to see what went wrong, what went right. And to really be objective about it. But in times of struggle, you got to put your head down and you got to go to work and you got to grow that backbone because that's going to set you apart so much from the modern world that people feel like when you talk to normal people and you're like this, you have a magnetic effect. They can't look away. They have to know more. And you're like, you're not ready. And they're like, how dare you say I'm not ready? I want to know all the things. And you're like, if I say what what I really know or what I'm really thinking right now, you will run away and we'll both we'll both have failed. You won't learn anything. And I'll feel like I'm a know-it-all who has to hide his knowledge away and you know, a secret temple at Yale. Mm. You know? Yeah, there was there have been moments like that for me where it's like, oh shoot, I shouldn't have gotten into that with that person. <laughs> but yeah, no, for sure. I think I think with this whole conversation, I mean, people who are are skeptical. There are many different aspects that you can look at with skull and bones and it'll make your head spin. Uh, I was going to say it'll make you scratch your head, but it should make your head spin, you know, because these are not, these are not things that, uh, you know, we, we would expect our seniors in their last year of college to be getting involved in things like uh global opium trading like you know like this is the this is the precursor to this drug war you know it happened in the college system they got all the the gifted students or aka the students that you know could follow the orders and wouldn't you know sort of fall out of line you know, and, and become a problem later on, you know, they kind of funnel these people into these roles where uh, the money keeps flowing, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's an illusion of excellence, you know, this people are striving to make themselves better and be a part of something that's elite. Uh, but it's all window dressing for this disgusting, uh, cannibalizing system. It's like the oven of Moloch in, in the in the Bible, they talk about this Moloch oven that they would sacrifice their children in. And, you know, it's just sort of like eating us alive. Uh, but they were so blinded to it because of all the ritual around it that this was a good thing. And we need to give our infant up to Moloch because that's going to make, uh, you know, it rain when it needs to rain and all this stuff that, 
no, I don't totally dis discourage or, or dis uh, dissuade that type of thinking. I think there's some thought to that, but I I don't think any of us can in, uh, encourage or endorse human sacrifice, and that's the kind of thing that's happening in our society. You you are a victim of human sacrifice if you live your life. Uh, in a nine to five job, have a midlife crisis, uh, and, and then like, you know, never fully realize your human potential. You know, it's sort of like, oh yeah, have a midlife crisis and then buy a Corvette and everything's fine. Like just buy a Corvette, like buy yourself a younger personality, like divorce your old wife and date young women, you know, speaking from the male perspective, like that's, that's the sort of human sacrifice, you know, we've sort of converted that to where we're now living uh that life of of you know it sounds really pessimistic and i don't like to totally get into it but it is it is like that the the chains um that we were once some of us were once enslaved in have now enslaved all of us invisibly you know we are all invisibly chained to this system somehow uh, not everyone, you know, I ran into some Amish people last uh, two months ago that, you know, they don't even have social security numbers. You know, I think we talked about that a little bit at some yeah. point. I was telling everybody about the Amish, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, what this means for podcasting and and to go back to your question of like, you know, do you, do I think like people are going to become more red pilled? I hope not. I don't think the red pill thing is a good thing. I think if anything, that's just creating uh, a, a new group of people that'll be even harder to um, persuade you know it's it's just it's more division you know what we need is for people to discover themselves and transform themselves yeah and what uh, i mean when i say red pill isn't the same as what the internet thinks red right. pill means i mean people who are aware yeah uh, who are thinking critically yeah that's what we need we need more people to be red pilled by that definition for sure yeah. well because i think that that's another trap because i've met plenty of people who like consider themselves red pilled and all they know is some things they read on the internet but they don't know themselves and they don't they're afraid they're they're yeah. responding to the fear that this information brings on when it's new and that's fine but like you know it's why i try to talk about my introduction to this because it was in person it was totally like it was a it was a rite of passage and i don't think we have enough of that in our society you know what amos taught me you know, he put me through a rite of passage in a in a sort of small way and in a very like in a mental way so to speak and um and i think we don't have enough of that i think people are just responding to symbols that induce fear and that could lead someone to awaken, sure. But I just get worried when I see people getting really extreme about certain topics. And even in the podcast community, you know, getting really emotionally uh, extreme about these things that a lot of it is designed to, it's weaponized to in, in, elicit that response. So, you know, not that I'm devaluing that passion i think we should have passion to make our world a better place uh, but we need to understand right relationship with our community and start from there because yeah. if we just yell on twitter tiktok and on our own podcasts about human trafficking it's only going to disturb people you know like we can get into the whole sex trafficking thing but normal people who don't 
even believe in half of the stuff that we've talked about today. They're just going to get upset by that and think that, you know, we're getting too paranoid and, and we're, you know, cause it's uncomfortable to think that your son or daughter can be taken away and abducted. And, and it's uncomfortable to think that that's systematic and not just the lone nut that can be stopped by the police. It's uncomfortable to think that it's a corrupt system that is invaded the police and that's actually, you know, using law enforcement to traffic people. So, um, you know, all of that stuff has a reality to it but whether or not it's important to your life is determined by you and it should be important to all of us but you know unless you're gonna strengthen your own community i don't think that you know there's really a place for you to do anything about it maybe start a podcast and inspire others right that's i mean that's the way we're doing it but um yeah there's there's many different paths in this life. And some people are going to be the the hero for that situation. Others are going to be the hero for another situation, right? That, that is also true. Me personally, I, th I think my path is to have open-minded discussions and do my best to educate myself and share what I learn with others, you know, and if everyone could do a little bit of that, that would maybe help. But um, you know, I'm an odd ball, so I can't prescribe my way for anyone else. <laughs> well, we're used to this, you know, it's like, I, I'm glad you said what you said about, um, when you first encounter information like this, the temptation is to kind of get pissed off, um, and to get like, uh, real dark about it. And I used to be that way. Um, but not for very long because it's not sustainable. You're, you're going to drive yourself nuts and you're going to drive everyone around you uh, a little bit crazy because you're just a sad, angry person who sees nothing that the, who thinks that there's nothing that can be done except to post on Facebook about, you know, uh, some pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Like I've seen way too many boomers go through that where they run into this and they're like, I got fired and I sat on my computer for six months and did research and here I am. And it's like, Dude, look, you're, you may not be wrong. You may be absolutely right about all of it, but don't let it kill you. <laughs> don't let it put out your light because we need light in this world. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think, you know, people are going to either get cho uh, chewed up in this lifetime by the system or they'll overcome it. And it's not, uh, it's not for everybody to overcome. I'm someone who believes in multiple lives, you know, I, not everybody does. So, uh, again, I'm an oddball, but I, I don't think that we're meant to learn everything in this lifetime. Uh, although I haven't had past live experiences, um, I would say that there have been times in my life where information or insight came to me in a way that felt, uh, different than something that I've read or learned about and access through just t contemporary knowledge, you know, it was, it was almost astral, like something was being channeled and I don't really even subscribe to any channelings, you know, I'm, I'm not like listening to channelers and thinking like everything they say is true. Cause there's some stuff that seems really not true about that. But I think every person has a potential to channel higher insight through themselves and you know maybe cannabis helped me figure out how to do that it wasn't just sitting on the couch smoking you know i was a martial artist i would train 
I mean, I still am technically, I just don't train, but, uh, you know, I, I used to train six days a week. So like, you know, if you're moving and grooving that much, like it's just a different, it's just a different level. So I don't know what it was then, but ever since I've been this way and, uh, you know, I haven't been the healthiest person in the sense that like, I don't eat like a completely like strict diet, but I think that's important. Like I'm very conscious about where I'm eating and, and that's helped me understand a lot of this. You know, I think that's a big part of the, the reason why a lot of people aren't into this stuff is because their life is grinding them down. Their diet is leaving them in a weakened state of mind. And all they want to do is just relax and hang out with their family. So how much time do you really have after you work? You're low on energy because your diet sucks. And, you know, you have all this entertainment to consume your free time. Uh, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves in a certain equation of ignorance that podcasting is helping people get out of because it's a very active thing. You could do uh, you could work while you listen to this podcast. There's probably a bunch of people that are doing that right now. Hey, shout out to you delivery guys like me, uh, you know, and I do chores now when I listen to podcasts, you know, cause I'm not on the road anymore. Uh, sometimes we'll go for drives and I'll have my headphones on. I'm listening to a podcast and my girlfriend's like waving her hand out the window and shoot, you know, <laughs> so, you know, but, uh, but me and, you know, the podcast thing, it's like, yeah, I think this is a wave that people are are falling into. And and it's interesting. I I always expected like, oh, well, I work for Sam. So I'll, like, you know, people who find me, they're going to know about Sam. But it's surprising, like synchronistically, like a lot of my audience just finds the show because of the name of the show. They don't even know me from Tinfoil Hat, which is cool uh, because, you know, it's been two years now and I've kind of like, authentically found my place in this podcasting world and whether that means i'm helping the greater picture or not it's pretty fun to do i've learned a lot the audience seems to be having a good time and learning with me so yeah i don't know what uh what's the next i hope we can keep rocking our free speech uh in podcasting i don't know if that's going to be uh total i mean who knows what could happen but yeah it, if it's anything like radio, then it's probably going to get diluted by corporate interests, but pretty happily. But yeah. The, the, the ring, uh, the truth rings a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, people being authentic rings a certain way. And we're also uh, like drowned in inauthenticity these days. We can like, if we're at least a tiny bit critical, we can sniff it out. Like it's a freaking campfire. Mm -hmm. Um the real stuff we know when we find the real stuff so i mean i we're running out of time so i have two two things um one if you haven't listened to our episode on emmanuel swedenborg you should totally check that out yeah <laughs> I, I know who emmanuel swedenborg is there's like a whole swedenborgian uh group in the state that i'm in uh i never interacted with them but i'm aware of them i'll check it out yeah, there's not many of them, but I heard that a billionaire who lives near me was a Swedenborgian. I'm like, what is that? So I went and looked into it. 
And that was a guy who could see through the veil. I sort of think of him as a proto podcaster in a way. <laughs> I think I think I did listen to it. Didn't he like have these like journeys into other like Mars and Venus and Jupiter and stuff? Like he said he went to other planets or am I thinking of a different episode of yours? Oh, that might have been Roger Bacon. Huh. But I'm not sure. I, Swedenborg was so out there, but he's like one of my favorite people because he was just so interesting. Hmm. And the other thing I wanted to say is I'm really glad you've been able to find an audience that wasn't, you know, just related to Sam, because while I like Sam, um, you know, he's big enough where you're going to pick up some people who are just listeners. They're not really growing with this. And, you know, before I went on tinfoil hat, I had probably 800, maybe 900 dedicated people. And after that, I had 2,500 plays per episode, which was awesome. Um, and that's just from one, that's just from one metric. My subscribers shot up everywhere. But the funny thing was, I know those original 800, 900 aren't going anywhere. <laughs> and I love that. And I guess shout out to you guys. And also, since you shouted out your delivery drivers, I got to shout out the warehouse people. Yeah. Specifically, the night shift custodial team. You guys are great. And I don't <laughs> see you as much as I'd like to. Uh, because we literally work on an inverse schedule. <laughs> um, I still think about you guys frequently, but that's for you. Uh, Mark, is there anything you'd like to wrap up on? Like leave us with a message or something. Um, I, obviously, we got to plug your show, you know, all that good stuff. Oh, and one more thing, Alt Media United. If you mm -hmm. want to investigate some topics, man, like there's about a hundred doorways there with all these different podcasts and different topics. Mm -hmm. You can just go for it. Yeah, you're part of Alt Media United, the cooperative I started. I would say uh, the final thoughts is just go out and investigate what's going on in your local area. That's how it started with me. I was just, this, you know, dude, not really sure why I was in college. And I ended up finding uh, an interest that has lasted, you know, uh, since, you know, the 10 years now. And, um, not just in conspiracies and spirituality, but all of everything in between that, you know, is sort of ancillary to understanding these things in a, in a complete and composite way. So if you're interested in all of that, check out my show, but mostly go and do your own research, right? Cause this show is my chance to research in a way, cause I'm interviewing brilliant people like yourself. You've guessed it on my show. And uh, so I'm, I'm learning as my show goes on, but what's cool is I have a couple shows now. So I do your handbook for the apocalypse, which is a series of conversations with myself and my good friend, Michael Wan, uh, who is sort of like a mentor, just like Amos is a mentor. Uh, I've attracted mentors into my life and I made that intention. I set that intention, like, you know, so that's another word of advice. If you're maybe feeling like you could find some purpose in life and it's not quite, you don't have your finger on the button yet, uh, make it set an intention to, to run into a mentor and you'd be surprised at how quickly the universe will bring someone in your life that, you know, has a lot to teach you. So Mike and I talk every episode, it's just me and him. That is on the Susquehanna Alchemy RSS feed. And then specifically for people who want to research in their backyards, uh, you can have an opportunity to join me on my podcast. It's called Esoteric America. 
I host it with my girlfriend, Tara, and our friend Roman, who has his own podcast, and our friend Chad, who is a researcher for his local area. And we just have people on to, to talk about, you know, where they live. Like we've had uh, someone from Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Anderson, Indiana, Baudette, Minnesota, Inland Empire, California. And each episode is titled by whatever area we're talking about. And we basically focus on the hidden forgotten history of that place. So that's a fun show I do. And then of course, my family thinks I'm crazy is the main podcast and everything that I do is on my website, myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. So yeah, thanks for having me on. We talk about dead people. I think I'm one of the uh, now 2,500, hopefully that stick <laughs> with you concurrently as your show grows. And uh, yeah, I, it's a pleasure, dude. Cause like I said at the beginning, like I really appreciate your approach to podcasting and the way you guys highlight these people in history that are just like, you know, for the most part, just names in books. Like I'll come across a guy like Roger Bacon, for instance, in a book. And I'm just like, Oh, that's another name, you know, until I dive into it with the help of, you know, dedicated researchers like yourself, uh, it sort of adds some visuals to it. Nice. Well, since you're a guest on our show, and since you listen to our show, I'm going to give you a very, very special opportunity. You know how I end the show, right? I say, we'll let the sound of something play you out. Yeah. So I'm going to say, well, that should pretty much do it for now. And we'll let the sound of the ever expanding now play you out. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Well, he was born next to a nuclear power plant, has an IQ of two. And got hit in the head with several rocks as a child. But boy, can this guy play basketball. Look at that team from three. He's not the smartest player in the NBA, as you can tell here. He goes to the bench and he has no idea what the fuck is going on. But boy, oh boy, has he been a threat so far on the defensive end.